0: PlushCare.com slash loss
1: Hey, hey, this is Page Break, and I'm your host, Brian McClellan. Welcome to our very first episode. Some of you may know me from my Powder Mage epic fantasy novels. If you don't, that's okay. In this podcast, I am to sit down with fellow creative professionals and find out more about the people behind my favorite books, shows, podcasts, and more. My first guest is writer and producer Joseph Melozzi. Joe is known for his long stint with Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, and Stargate Universe, as well as Dark Matter and Utopia Falls. As fans of mine might know, Joe is also working with the production company that purchased the Powder Mage TV rights, and he gives us a little insight into what that process looks like. Joe and I also talked about his start in children's TV, navigating creative control inside Hollywood, and what it's like to write collaboratively for the small screen. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joseph Malozzi.
0: Hard to hit Canada. It, it, well, I mean, I hit, it hit us pretty hard, as hard as every, everywhere else, but uh, I'm always reticent to answer this question because uh, as a writer, life is not that different and i feel almost guilty because everybody's like oh my gosh my life has been turned upside down i can't do this i can't do that and i miss going out and you know even as a tv writer i've always been fairly reclusive uh so you know eh, life is not all that different i mean you know i miss going out to restaurants um but off the top of my head i mean that's it yeah
1: (laughs) Right, because, you know, work doesn't change that much for people like us because we're at no. home in our offices writing at a computer anyways.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, I'm not in production, but to be fair, just uh, COVID has kind of thrown all productions for a of bit of a loop. So, um, you know, I'm aiming for hopefully uh, later this year or early next year and it's Powder Mage. So, yeah, um,
1: I uh, I was actually really kind of curious about you know the, the the whole writing thing because I, I went down a little bit of a of a rabbit hole kind of researching you a bit hmm. and it was interesting i hadn't realized that you really started in kind of children's animation is that right
0: yeah um in fact uh whenever new writers ask me for advice i always tell them you know do what you're the standard, right? You're supposed to write a spec script that uh, demonstrates your ability to capture another show's voices, uh, you know, its tone, its characters. Uh, write a pilot script, an original pilot that uh, demonstrates your ability to uh, create a world, create a character with distinct voices. Uh, but I would say, you know, you should try your luck at animation first, because that's how I did it. I got my foot in the door almost like by accident. I send out a hundred resumes to uh, various production companies wanting to get my foot in the door as a script reader. And I didn't realize that one of the places I sent it to was an animation studio. And they were one of like a handful that actually got back to me and said, look, we don't have a position for a script reader, but if you're willing, you're willing to write for, or interested in writing for animation, this is how it works. We send you the series Bible, which you know covers what the show is about, and you pitch us ideas. And if we like one of your ideas, then we will hire you to write a script. And so the first my first sold uh work was an episode of The Busy World of Richard Scarry called Patrick Pig Learns to Talk. <laughs> and you know, if you go back in that episode, it's a little five minutes short, um, but it but it kind of encompasses all the things uh that uh make my writing distinctly me. I mean, yeah. the, the kind of the humor. There's a uh, kind of, the, kind of, the, kind of the fine dialogue, and then there's this kind of the twist at the end. Um, you know, influenced by uh, O. Henry and 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 Bradbury. So uh, you know, I always say get your foot in the door in animation, and I went from animation to teen sitcoms. I did a show called Student Bodies for several years, mm-hmm. and then from there, I ended up uh, segueing to one hour action. Adventure drama, and from that to Stargate, that was supposed to be a two-year gig, and then it turned into really a, a twelve-season uh, <laughs> year, yeah, a ride, and uh, and it was great, yeah. And and that's how I kind of established myself in the sci-fi world and the TV world.
1: Well, it's funny because it, when you when you Google you, it's all known for Stargate and Dark mm. Matter. And, but when you go a little bit deeper, uh, that's what I found interesting was that you have this background in children's and teen sitcoms and things
0: like that. Yeah. Actually, one of the shows that I developed, which is kind of funny, was a show called Caillou about, um, uh, it, it was actually based on a French, a Quebec uh, children's series about this kind of precocious little ball boy. Um, and, I you know the kids loved the animated series but the but adults hated it hated the character yeah. and i just heard that after something ridiculous like 12 or 13 years the show was finally canceled <laughs> um and uh and people were venting on on twitter about uh you know Kai Yu was the bait of my existence my kids loved that show growing up yeah. and uh, i issued a public apology on twitter like you know sorry <laughs> about that and and it's just kind of interesting people are like exactly that. They know me for Stargate and Dark Matter, but don't realize that I actually got my start in uh, in children's uh, animation. How old were you when you started? Um, I was in my early 30s. Yeah. So I, w- I would say late for, for really the career, but I mean, I, I wasn't part of the kind of the Hollywood uh, uh, machine and scene where, you know, you go to film school and from there you, you get a job potentially as a, uh, you know, in the mailroom at some... Uh, some agency, or, 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 you know, try to get your foot in the door in, in 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 a writer's room. I actually came to writing late. I actually wanted to write uh, prose fiction. Yeah, and I wrote a novel. And my former writing partner read the novel and was like, "This is this is really bad. This is terrible." <laughs> but you know, he said this would make a great f- film. And I thought about it, and I was like, maybe it would make a great film. And I learned the craft of screenwriting by picking up a book called uh by uh Sid Field, who's this kind of celebrated uh screen uh play uh teacher, I guess. Uh and and I learned the format and I adapted my terrible uh novel into an equally terrible uh feature script. But I learned the craft and from there I just you know um worked at it and yeah. then, then got into animation and from animation, worked right into live action and, and, and so on What
1: was your day job before you were writing full time
0: I was actually working um, i mean I, i'd done kind of you know things here and there, but my my big job was actually i worked at an animation company yeah uh, i I started off as um, kind of an uh, in department kind of uh, creative executive and work my way up to uh, director of development for this animation company and then from there I became a story editor and and then ultimately just decided to go freelance
1: so showbiz has been kind of in your veins from the beginning then huh
0: you know writing has always been in in my veins uh, as a kid I remember uh, loving Bradbury. so I would you know write uh, you know in grade four writing sh- yeah uh, these short stories, very much Bradbury-esque, yeah. uh, terrible little stories. You know, a, a fourth grader would would uh, would write, but I remember it concerned my teachers because they were they were the stories were all very dark. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and you know, I remember um, my mother asking me once, what, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" And I said, "Oh, I want to be a writer." And um, you know, I think she tried to to kind of suppress her horror and kind of explain <laughs> to me that. No one makes a living writing. I mean, what you do is you 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 become a lawyer or you become a journalist and you write on the side, and that's how you do it. And I thought, oh, okay, and and for a while, I actually considered law, and um, uh, it it was just not to be. It was not for me, shall we say?
1: Right. There's a kind of a fascinating phenomenon that I've kind that I've run into that it feels like when you talk about being a writer. People either assume you live in your mom's basement or that you have millions of dollars and mm-hmm. they don't think of the fact that there is like a there's a large most writers um are are right are in the middle somewhere you know you you you've got a lot of writers who are just doing it as a job you know they write tie in fiction or they write for t v shows or they do technical writing and things like that and yeah. And there, yeah. people don't seem to be able to accept that it's not one or the other,
0: and and, and the fact that it's it's really a fast or famine, uh, fast uh, feast, fast feast or famine <laughs> uh, type of situation, right? Where you know you you land a job or you get a book deal and you're working on that book, or you you land in a writer's room and you're working on that show for months, and then who knows what the future holds. Uh, I mean, you're only as good as your last book or your last job and and, uh, the industry can be can be cruel.
1: Yeah. Have you uh, worked writer's rooms like proper, like collaborative stuff?
0: Yeah. um, You know, obviously uh, on on Stargate, those those are really my our our first writer's rooms. Uh, And then on Dark Matter, which was my show, I ran the writer's room for that one. And then Utopia Falls, which was the last show I, I was showrunner on. I ran the writers' room for that, and uh, I run my writers' rooms, I think, fairly differently from what I hear than a lot of the LA writers' room. Where, you know, I hear the 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 the, those writers' rooms. You're in at eight. You're you're there till nine, sometimes ten at night. Uh, It can be absolutely grueling. When you break a story, it takes you weeks to break a story, and it's very detailed. Often you have dialogue uh, up there, uh, up on the big whiteboard. Uh, I prefer to kind of roll in kind of around 10 or so, (laughs) Uh, you know, we talk about what we're going to have for lunch and then we have lunch. And then after lunch, we talk about, you know uh, what, maybe we're going to have for dinner. And then, you know, usually like between two and four is a perfect, like, you know, solid two hours of work uh, that actually gets completed. And, and, uh, I prefer not to blue sky my, my, um, uh, my episodes, meaning I don't like to sort of breed it out in, 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 uh, intricate detail I, I like the writers just to, to kind of find the dialogue find the moments in the outline in the script uh, so my writers rooms tend to go fairly quickly I think
1: yeah do you do you think you prefer writing alone or with other people
0: Yeah. You know, uh I started my career with a writer partner and yeah. it was a lot of fun and in the beginning we started off by physically being in the same room writing so we would one of us would be at at the laptop and the other one would be pacing and, and running dialogue. And mm-hmm. then just as things got a bit crazier in terms of production, we started to write separately, but pitch the scripts back and forth. So I would write the first five pages, send it to him. He'd rewrite them and say, you know, move forward to page 10, then I'd rewrite and, and we pitch back and forth. And then near the end of our career on on, on Stargate anyways, um, it got to the point where he was doing more uncredited rewrites on other writers. And I was tending to do more of the original script that actually paid. So we, we ultimately shared on-screen on credit. But by yeah. that point, we were writing separately. And, and to be honest with you, I think I prefer writing separately. I, yeah. I, I value the input of others, um, but there's always a point. I mean, to be honest with you, there's always a point in, 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 in production in general where uh, you have something in mind for what you want to see. And uh, whether it be on the page or on the screen, uh, but the fact is that TV is such a collaborative process, which is great, and you have to trust others to you know to step up and, and do their jobs and and and, and contribute. And ninety nine percent of the time, it's great, and and all too often they'll bring something that you never expected that just you know surpasses your original expectations. But there's always that 1% of the time where you'll be <laughs> like, ah, oh, I wish they had hit that hard or they missed that or, you know, I would have done it this way. But, you know, that's, uh, that's part of the business. Right, right. I'm always, I'm
1: always fascinated by collaborative storytelling, but I also have something inside of me where, where I do want it. I, I want to be in charge, but I also want to be the only one to blame. Because if I only can blame myself, if something goes wrong, then I can just get over it and move on and get things done. But if I'm thinking about a second party, then it that brings all sorts of emotional and business baggage and things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, what, what I would rec- recommend the job for you, if you ever uh, sort of want, you know, set aside the uh, uh, books for a while, is a show running. Uh, <laughs> because I'll tell you, sort of uh, as a show runner, um, what I do is I run the room. Uh, and and of course you oversee the creation of, of a series, the development of the series, the development of the car- character arcs and story arcs over the first season and, and beyond. Uh, then the writers go off, you assign them their, their stories and they write the outlines and you you give them notes and then they send you the script and you give them notes and they do a pass or a polish and it's in your hands. Now, a lot of productions, a lot of showrunners hold writer's rooms when they go into production. I mm-hmm. don't because like you, I feel the buck stops with me. So once you roll into production, you're up against the clock. And, and sometimes it's creative, sometimes maybe the voices are off, so you have to do a pass or, or what have you. But other times you're in production and, and, and a week before you shoot, suddenly you lost that caffeine, you need to shift the scene to uh, a park or an actor is unavailable, or you, know, you, you, have, to, you have to make changes and as a creative showrunner that's you know kind of my bread and butter i love to basically step in and kind of put out fires and 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 figure out uh a solution to the puzzle and and not have to rely on anyone else
1: so would you kind of equate a showrunner to to almost like a creative general manager
0: sort of thing um yeah i guess so i guess so
1: cuz i i I guess I would have before really meeting you, you know, when we sold the powder mage rights, I, I would have assumed, I would have conflated showrunner and I think producer as Mm -hmm. like roughly the same thing.
0: You know, it's funny because uh, on, on Stargate in the, in the opening credits, there'd be like a dozen producers. And people always ask, you know, what does a producer do? And what is with all these producers? And, you know, every title means Something different, more yeah. or less. So, I mean, there's a line producer, and they're very different in that they um, they're in charge of the budgets, really. And mm-hmm. so, they're kind of the numbers the numbers people that are sort of non creative. Whereas um, co producer is, is kind of a title for an entry level writer. Um, and and usually, if you're with, with a production over the course of half a season or, or more, you get bumped up to producer. Uh, and then you know from there you take on sort of more responsibilities, you become a supervising producer, a co-executive producer, ultimately an executive producer. So on, on Stargate, on, on Dark Matter, I was an exe- executive producer and a showrunner. Uh, other times, I'll be honest with you, people will get uh, producer credits for kind of the most nonsense of, uh, of, <laughs> of reasons. Uh, sometimes not so nonsense. I mean, sometimes if they contribute, let's say funding for yeah. a production, they become producers. Uh, other times, you know, the, uh, you know, the fin- financier's aunt had an idea for, <laughs> so, you know, something that uh, was similar to something that came up in the writer's room and suddenly yeah. they're getting a story credit or a, a co-producer credit or an aso- associate producer credit. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh it's a very confusing uh 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 you know world when 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 it comes to sort of discussion of sort of what a producer does. It really depends on the producer. Yeah.
1: I I I'm incredibly I, I mean the more I learn about how TV and film work as businesses and creative ventures, the more I kind of am impressed that they ever happen at all. Because so much is happening. You know, when I write a novel, you know, I've got an editor, I've got You know, I've got a few people sort of involved with the process. Um, And but it it's not a lot. But when you're doing a TV show or a film, man, there's so many people and there's so many moving parts to keep hold of, like you mentioned before, like losing losing a shooting location at the last minute and trying to figure out how to fill that there's there's it feels like it feels like if you work on that sort of thing, you're probably going to be wearing a lot of hats. Is that right?
0: That, yes, that is right. I mean, but I mean, that's what a, a showrunner does, as the name implies. You're, yeah. You've got your, your, uh, your fingers in many pies. Is that right? <laughs> that yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, you know, I very much envy what you do, simply yeah. from a creative standpoint in that you are able to tell pretty much the story you want to tell and um end it Mm -hmm. when when you see fit to end it in the case of dark matter for instance i mean that was kind of my baby it was it was a show that i developed for many many years while i was working on stargate and stargate kept on getting picked up so it just gave me more time to to really flesh out the backstories and 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 and, um and, and sort of my plans for the for the uh for the series and and i ultimately ended up approaching each season like a an installment in a book series. Yeah. A, it's own, you know, theme, it's own beginning, middle and end. Um, and I had a five-year plan for the series. And uh, I only got to tell, you know, th- put out three of the five books in the series yeah. and it ended on a cliffhanger. And it was, it was just kind of very uh, frustrating. In fact, I was fairly vocal about my frustration with the way it came down and, and, and just the fact that, uh, you know, um, I... I I produced I think something like 365 episodes of television for Sci-Fi Network. No producers yeah. produced uh more programming for for them. That's and brilliant. um and the fact that I didn't get a call about the show my show's cancellation, the fact that I that uh, our request for a a movie to wrap things up was not even responded to. They did not even deign to respond to our Oof. uh uh request just um uh ticked me off, shall we say? Yeah. To the point that, like I said, I was I was fairly vocal online, uh, to the point where apparently uh my, my my former writing partner went in to pitch the executive who canceled our show. And he said that apparently when he sat down, the first thing the executive said was, uh, so your uh, writing partner likes to to uh, tweet, eh? And uh <laughs> you know uh You know, as it turns out, sadly, or maybe not, that executive himself got uh, canceled. Uh, So, uh, you know, (laughs) such is uh, such is the reality of the
1: business. Right. Well, it it is it is the the ultimate kind of meeting of of creativity and and business, you know, trying to do that, because that does happen in in writing, um, especially with series, if. If you have one or two books come out and they kind of bomb, even if you have a five book contract, they might just say, "Here's the rest of your advance. We we're not actually going to publish anything." Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't happen, I don't think, nearly as often, you know, percentage wise as like TV shows get canceled, mm-hmm. but it's still you know it's still a specter that hangs over. Especially, I think anyone who works on series, uh, which, you know, epic fantasy, sci-fi, you get a lot of, a lot of series in there.
0: Yeah. And, but also from a creative standpoint, I, I mean, I don't know how much influence your editor will have over a story, but for instance, it can be uh, executive influence. Creative influence can be fairly severe in television. I was fortunate in Dark Matter that uh, creative, should I say meddling? was yeah. fairly insignificant simply because um, the, the networks didn't pay enough of, of a licensing fee to, to, to warrant um, uh, their participation. So, it, you know, if they had paid more then I would have had to listen to them more, but because they paid less, it was kind of a blessing because even though we didn't have as much money to make the show as let's say an expanse, I really got to make the show I wanted to make. And yeah. I would, I would, you know, 10 times out of 10 always, always make the same deal.
1: That's, that's interesting. Uh, The way that the kind of the executives, the business people, the money people, that sort of stuff. uh, I always wonder whether those guys tend to have any creative bones in their body or whether they're always straight businessmen.
0: I will, uh, I've dealt with both and I really prefer the straight businessmen because yes, Because the street businessmen just stick to business, yeah. and they will not attempt to give me script notes. Whereas <laughs> there are, for the most part, they're you know they they either come up from accounting or from from business affairs, and or have always wanted to be creative. Yeah, and you know I have to say I have worked with some great creative executives, but I've worked with some really terrible uh, executives. Uh, who have terrible ideas, just terrible taste, Uh, and half the struggle of a production in that case is trying to make them feel like they're being heard, but also at the same time ensuring that their notes don't, you know, kill a script. Um, I I remember one show I worked on where um, the writer had had written a first draft, and it it was a very exciting uh, sequence. But it didn't make sense, mm-hmm. so I so I had to rewrite it. And our executive was like, "Well, I kind of like it better the other way. It, it was more exciting." And I and I said, "Well, it just, but it, unfortunately, it doesn't make sense. The motivations yeah. don't make sense. It, it just..." And and she was like, "Well, I I you know I don't care. I don't think the audience will care." And I, and I was like, oh, "Well, I I will care." So and she's like, "No, just make the change." And I and I couldn't. I was I was like, honestly, I can't. I as a showrunner, I just I won't do it. I mean, yeah. I, you know, look, don't get me. Are wrong I mean, of course, I will always listen to notes, and I, I always like to give notes on notes, so essentially an executive will send me notes, and then I will go through the notes and point by point, either say, "Great, well, I'll do this, or how about this, or I will push back and say and and just give them a reason why I don't think this makes sense, and rarely does it happen where um you know you have to go to war over things like logic, but there are certain things I just can't compromise just kind of you know logic um uh character um those are things i just you know if, if my character will not do that or the character won't do that or if there's really no reason for the character to do that yeah then they won't do that not in my screen yeah. In a given month,
1: over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place with LinkedIn. You can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When when it comes to when it comes to books, I think the meddling tends to be much on the lower side generally. Uh, I'm it does happen, but. Uh, I think it's usually because books tend to be sold up front. You'll have, you know, either with an experienced writer, you'll have a a pitch that you'll sell. um, Or you'll, you know, with a new writer, you'll have an entire book. And so the, you know, the publisher, your editor, the people that are buying it, they know exactly what they're getting. And, and I think that, I think that helps kind of preclude that sort of, you know, mid writing Kind of fiddling. You're always going to get editorial notes, and some writers, some writers take regular editorial notes very personally,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: which I've never really understood. You know, unless your editor genuinely sucks, which you know, I, I that does happen. But uh, but yeah, I think that I think that the, the generalized meddling isn't nearly as much of a thing in in just normal publication.
0: Mm. Now you said something. You yeah. you mentioned pitching. Yeah, I'm curious how you pitch a book uh, series. Now, do, do you, is it a written document that you send in? Do you do a verbal pitch? Do you do both? In in the world of literature, how do you pitch? Uh, it's all it's all written.
1: Uh, you know, with, um, so I'll, I'll talk about uh, Glass Immortals, which is my new epic fantasy that's starting uh, next summer. Uh, you know, we're recording this right at the beginning of June 2021. Um, so uh, so this this will be my next big epic fantasy. So the way I pitched it was basically I, I wrote a sixty thousand word partial, um, where I outlined the entire I, I did a detailed outline of the first book, uh, a general outline of all three books in the pitch, and then I wrote sixty thousand words of a book, and and I sent that in. Um, my editor or my agent took that out, and we started shopping it around and i was very fortunate in that i got an offer very quickly on it and it was a it was a good enough offer that i didn't really need to go shopping around enough well uh,
0: congratulations
1: yeah uh, i was very fortunate but in terms of that that's kind of how i approached it was just mm-hmm. and i think that's the normal kind of partial in you know in in science fiction and fantasy at least genre publishing um and i i don't think i could have sold that if i was a brand new author because mm-hmm. you need you, when i sold promise of blood it was off of the entire first book um and uh and this one was basically sold off of a a strong first third plus my own reputation mm-hmm. um and and that was and and that turned out to be good enough for what i needed there um and that was fun. And that's that's a great segue because I, I wanted to... My own fans would be kind of pissed at me if I had you on here. And I didn't ask you a bit about what the process is like for you and what, what Powder Mage looks like at this point.
0: Okay. So I always start... specifically the powder mage page by talking about the fact that i'm a fairly voracious reader although last year i didn't read as much which is kind of strange given that i had more time yeah um and then i read i read everything fiction non-fiction general fiction a lot of genre and i remember reading game of thrones for the first time years ago and thinking this will make such a good tv series and and it did for the most part (laughs) uh and uh and uh, and and of course, with the success of Game of Thrones, everyone wants to make the next Game of Thrones. And as I'm watching the rights to various book series get snapped up, it strikes me that people are looking to make the next Game of Thrones by literally just remaking Game of Thrones. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised because I knew of a series that had all of the elements that made Game of Thrones so compelling, the colorful characters, the otherworldly setting you know, the uh, action, the intrigue, the twists, the turns, the shocks and surprises. You know, the team same time was totally different. Um, you know, with its uh, focus less on, uh, drawing less of an inspiration from the Middle Ages and more from the Industrial Era, uh, and and predicated on, on, on uh, focused on a magic system that was just very unique. Um, you know, again, I mean, it, it, there was nothing like it out there. And yeah. of course, I'm talking about the, about, about, uh, the Powder Mage trilogy um and specifically a, a promise of blood and um you know uh, jb sugar who's a director and a producer he 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 produced a show called bitten um for for several years he came and directed on on dark matter and we got along we hit it off and he's like hey if i want to work on something let me know and i was like well how about ip and he's like I send me some ip so i was like sure and i sent him powder mage and he was like this is really cool he's like okay you know what um let me look into this and then i didn't hear about uh, from him for about a year and then it's like okay <laughs> we got the rights um and so at that point I was like okay we're looking to do an adaptation of, of the series we for for you know you call it the small screen but I, I i would um i mean because literally it is a small screen but i i would um argue that actually uh a lot of the programming on television is 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 uh, light years ahead of of most of what's you know appearing on the big screen now, yeah. um, and so the first step is to craft a pitch, uh, a pitch, a verbal pitch, and a pitch deck. And so, as you know, although your your listeners don't know, I will let them know that um, <laughs> in crafting the pitch deck, it's you know, also referred to as a series Bible or overview, uh, what you do is you present kind of a a broad stroke um, uh, breakdown of the world of the series, who the main characters are, uh, their various arcs, what the first episode uh, will more or less be about, what the first season will be about, how it'll end, um, what the plans are for subsequent seasons, and uh, you touch a bit on, on tone and theme. So in crafting that pitch deck, as you know, I got together with you because I'm a firm believer in <laughs> you know, obviously respecting uh, uh, the creative force uh, that, is, uh, that is you. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so we went back and forth and, and, and we crafted the pitch deck. And then using the pitch deck as a template, I crafted the verbal pitch. And the verbal pitch is slightly different in that you're, you're kind of looking to sell. Uh, the, the, uh, the series. So, you know, you introduce yourself and then you roll into the tease, which is really the opening sequence to your pilot, which is your first episode. And of course you want it to really grab you. And, 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 and it's very much, I mean, that, that opening chapter in, in, in promise of blood. Um, uh, and, uh, and and then you talk about the world, you talk about the characters and you broad stroke what the pilot will be and you broad stroke what you have planned for the first season. And then again, you talk about tone and theme and then you kind of get into production uh, brass tacks. Yeah. How much is it going to cost? How you plan to realize this vision? Um, and and uh, and then you, you kind of leave it in their hands. And at this point, um, what we're doing is we're going out to potential partners first mm-hmm. um, just because uh, for positioning, it's always, I think, better to go in with, uh, let's say like a, a power player or someone with kind of um, a, you know, a little more cred uh, yeah. but before you go into Netflix or Amazon. So at this point now, and it's, again, it's kind of a very slow process because you think, oh, great. You know, I'm going to make uh, a, a, you know, book a uh, pitch with, uh, with, Studio X. And they're like, great. How does uh, August 17th sound to you? And you're like, Oh, okay, fine. Are <laughs> they really that busy? I wonder. And so right. <laughs> a lot of it is the frustration of waiting and you're, you know, you're, you're doing the verbal pitch like, like, like me, I, I kind of like to prep the hell out of it. Uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised because I was actually um, developing a pitch with, with another uh, a producer friend of mine, who's actually done very well in LA and, um, I, I, I was trying to sort of I was going over the pitch and he's like, what are you doing? And I, and I was like, I'm trying to get the pitch down. And he's like, you just read it. And I was like, what seriously? He's like, yeah, I just read it. He's like, God, no, we don't, you know, no one memorizes our pitches. And I, that, that surprised me. So, you know, as much as possible, I try to go off book, but yeah. I will always have the, the document in front of me and that's what makes zoom so great. So <laughs> instead of like, yeah. you know, going down and, 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 and checking your notes, your yeah, notes are right on screen. So hopefully they don't even notice when, uh, when, when you check them. Uh, so at this point, I mean, we're, we're going out. We're still in the process of going out to potential partners. And at that point, we're, we, we can decide, you know, who's interested, who's not interested. Do we want to partner with them? And then take the next step. And the next step will either be writing a pilot script and going out with a pilot script and pitch deck and pitch to, let's say, the Amazons and the Apples and the, Net- and the Netflixes of the world or just going out with a pitch. Um, and I mean, there's no right answer to that because there's certain places that like to read a pitch. Uh, I like to read a, a script and I'm a firm believer in, in that the proof is always in the script. Yeah. But then there are others who like to kind of, uh, kind of be in the development process and like to be on board for that first step and and want some input into that pilot script. So they may be uh they may prefer you not have a pilot script so that's going to be a discussion for hopefully july yeah yeah
1: it's fascinating how how much it is standardized but not you know how how everybody has their own thing you kind of you kind of generally know what to expect but Mm -hmm. also everybody does things a little differently yeah um
0: there is no there is no uh right or wrong way to pitch, but I just found that um versus Warner Brothers has a template that they it's the way they like to be pitched, and it's very yeah. much what I I I explained. You 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 start with the T's, very detailed T's to, to engage them. Then you talk about the world, you talk about the characters, you talk about uh you broad stroke the pilot. I, I find personally that the only tweak I make is that I um Rather than do a separate character section, I like to roll my characters into the pilot so that it uh, feels a little more organic. And then from there, you talk about the first season, your plans beyond the first season, and then you end with tone and theme. And tone and theme is always important to them because they want to know sort of what is this show like? Yeah. Um, I mean, comps are always, always important to them. Um, they, they, they always request that you, uh, whenever you introduce a character, um, you use a comp like, oh, uh, you know, a, 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 uh, war weary Josh Brolin for instance, yeah. or, uh, or, 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 what have you. Um, so, you know, it's just, I'm not going to say that maybe executives need a little help, a little nudge and sort of, uh, <laughs> imagining, uh, but, uh, you know, that's kind of standard now for, for the industry.
1: So, um, this, uh, are, are comps in TV and film as bullshit as they are in uh, book they, writing? They because... are
0: absolutely bullshit. Absolutely <laughs> bullshit. Because, I mean, in, or, in order to, uh, for the comps we need to work yeah. for kind of a blanket um, number of executives, they have to be such big name actors that... Um, for the most part, they're, they're probably going to be so busy that they're unlikely to be able to do your show if they wanted to. So really, it's just, um, it's just a, a temp placeholder. Yeah. Unlike music, and you know, it just reminds me of whenever we used to put temp music in uh, our, our cuts in when, when we're uh, doing uh, network cuts of, of an episode, uh, sometimes we would put in tent music, and the network would fall in love with the tent music, and then it would just become hell trying to secure the rights. So I remember on Stargate, all the cuts were dry, and the networks hated it uh-huh. because they wanted the tent music. And Brad Wright would would be like, "No, learn to watch a dry cut."
1: <laughs> so I asked that question for the listeners. I asked that question because in uh, genre publishing, it's mm-hmm. always they always ask you for comparable titles, and. Mm-hmm. As, well, at least in my genre of epic fantasy, it's always Game of Thrones meets Wheel of Time or, right. you know, whatever. It's, you know, pick whatever the big thing is and compare it to the other big thing. And that's always the comp title.
0: Yeah. And and it's much the same in, uh, in television, although, you know, specifically with regard to Powder Mage, I, I mentioned Game of Thrones off the top as... Really, it's the granddaddy of the right. fantasy adaptations. But I really don't go further with the comps because I think the world you've created is so distinct and so different, and that's one of the selling points: is that there's really nothing like there, uh, yeah. like it out there. Well,
1: I I have always enjoyed using Sharps Rifles as mm. a comp title for my books because it takes people a little off guard because it's not fantasy mm. um, and. And it's it's interesting and it's different and a lot and and more people than you would think have see, either seen the show or read the books.
0: Right, right, yeah. I mean, I I, I definitely see that. uh I think in the case of executives, though, you kind right. of be swimming upstream on, on that one. Right, and
1: that's yeah. that's like the that's the kind of decision that you, as showrunner and the pitcher, have to mm-hmm. kind of you have to kind of make that decision. And I. I find that fascinating how you navigate those waters. How have things changed over the last decade as streamers are coming in and becoming the big thing and and it seems like becoming bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: Yeah, that's I get asked that question a lot and it's tough for me to answer because on the one hand you would think that with the increased demand in programming, there would be more opportunity. And yet I find that most of the big opportunities tend to go to the same people. Yeah. Um, like they'll sign the big overall deals and then whatever's left over, um, you know, goes to whoever else. And then sometimes you end up with uh, a stranger things that, that blows up and, 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 and there you go. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, you know I, I, re- I remember being on Stargate and our, our visual effects supervisor at the time saying streaming is going to be really big, streaming is going to be really big. And I kept on thinking, yeah, that makes sense. Streaming is going to be really big. And yet for so long, it, it was just really something uh, uh, people did to pirate shows online when they couldn't watch them uh, uh, live on television. And, uh, and I just kind of dismissed it for a while. And then it just kind of blew up. Yeah, and it's just kind of been very interesting because, you know, for, for instance, Netflix is a model that I honestly never understood, and it's been very successful uh, for them. but it's a subscription-based model, yeah. And so, you know, they 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 select their shows based on these algorithms, and it's all about uh, driving subscribers to 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 Netflix. But at some point, they've got to hit critical mass. At some yeah. point, there will be people. Who you know? They will. The people who were going to subscribe will have subscribed, and and at that point, what are you going to do? I mean, sure, you have a great, uh, uh, you know, an, uh, a great subscriber base, but how do you grow right. the business beyond that? And so that's something I, I just. I'm
1: I'm I'm sure they have dozens of very smart people somewhere yeah, trying sure. to figure that out.
0: <laughs> I'm sure.
1: Right. Because uh, you just yeah you run out of people eventually, to, to subscribe to things. So you know I, I do wonder if there there is there a point at which somebody like Netflix says yeah oh, yeah we're actually pretty happy with our numbers we're let's just hold steady or is it always going to be more more more?
0: It's going to have to be more and more and more because they're a public company yeah and and their their uh, sh- uh, sh- uh, stockholders are going to see growth and really that comes from increasing the subscriber base and it's going to be tough i mean with disney um entering the mix now and and potentially drawing away uh potential viewers um i think in the beginning it's going to be okay because disney is new um i think cbs access to to a certain extent is new uh apple is new um uh but after, and, and Amazon now with a big MGM um, purchase is, is going to be rolling out, uh, I'm sure expanding its, its, uh, its uh, programming. And so I think at the beginning, people are more willing to spend money on all of them. Yeah. But it'll reach a point where I think people will say, you know, I'm going to have to narrow it down to one or two. So I got to choose. And then at that point, it, things are going to get a little uh, constricted.
1: Yeah. And and I I I have friends who say I I think it's uh CBS has Star Trek right yeah um I, I have people who say oh yeah I only subscribe to CBS when the new Star Trek is out right and and then I immediately unsubscribe and and I imagine yeah. I'm I'm way too lazy for that I just have kind of my fold of things that I subscribe <laughs> right. to right. Uh, but I imagine that's going to be more and more frequent is that, oh, uh, yeah, I'll jump in when, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll renew my Netflix when the, the second season of Witcher comes out, you know, et cetera.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and another thing they can do, obviously, is, is um, appeal to a unique fan base. For instance, yeah. your fan base uh, <laughs> is an example. Or, you know, they, if they, they sign, um, was it Ryan Murphy? To like at this big overall deal and of course he has fans so they'll they'll subscribe as well so yeah that 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 yeah, i think very much uh, is part of their game plan as well yeah I,
1: now i have noticed that you you seem very i, I don't want to slag off everybody else but you seem especially passionate about the fandom and the things that you work on. You seem very involved with you know with uh kind of fan groups of Stargate and Dark Matter and and I think that's kind of cool. Now is that is that coming from just a is that coming from your own fandom of your own yeah I genuinely love these shows?
0: Yeah, I guess to a certain extent. I mean I grew up a fanboy reading comic books and 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 science fiction and 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 so um when i got the stargate gig the first thing i did was go online and sort of talk to the fans and find out what they you know find what they like what they didn't like yeah and it's you know i i always respected the fans um because i mean it's kind of cliché to say but you know obviously the show would not, not exist without the fans yeah. and uh, but fandom can be a double edged sword uh, especially when you're working in genre fiction right. uh and you know they can be very passionate and supportive but on the other hand if they if you make a decision that they disagree with i.e kill off a character then uh you know they can turn on you yeah. um and i you know i mean it's just you know a a a reality of of uh of genre uh working in genre whether it be you know writing books i'm sure or, or or working in television so like i said i've always been very respectful um in terms of dark matter specifically, uh, I kind of empathize, empathize with the fans in that, you know, as a network, you want to drive viewers to the show. And sci-fi kind of did, you know, went through the motions, and didn't really do much. So I, you know, obviously it's my show. So I did as much as I could. And the show was the, when it was canceled, was actually the second most watched scripted show on on their network. Um, and, I just feel that once you greenlight a show, you enter into a uh, an unspoken agreement with <laughs> viewers. You know, you're asking them to take a chance on, on the show, to spend time with the characters, uh, and you know, sit through all the commercials or or, or what have you. Uh, and in exchange, I would think the 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 only thing that I think as a creator if i speak for the fans what i would ask is uh, is closure yeah um just give us an ending instead of just canceling a show give us give us uh, a movie or, or something and and if a network can't even do that then uh in my my opinion they they uh
1: <laughs> well and that's that is a that's a controversial
0: subject in genre publishing
1: you know, you look at Game of Thrones or the King Killer Chronicles mm-hmm. and you get you people get they get very passionate about these things. And and when they stop happening for whatever reason, you get people that are going to get up in arms.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, George R. R. Martin, what are you doing tweeting about the New York Giants when, you know, your your last book is, is like six months uh, overdue? Right. Uh, you know I see a lot of that, which I find kind of funny, but uh you know i, I again i I interact with the fans a lot because i i I respect them a lot, mm-hmm. so for the most part, I think most writers would dismiss their concerns, for instance, there's a lot a, a lot of fans who are critical of 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 new star trek or or critical yeah. of, of George R. R martin, and most writers will will side with the creative and say, "Well, if you don't like it, then don't watch it um but these fans are complaining because, again, they kind of took you at your word in the beginning and they invested their time and they fell in love with this world and the, char- and the characters. And like it or not, they, you know, have a perceived ownership or partial owner- ownership in, in everything right. you have created. Uh, so rather than dismiss them and I mean, I'm not saying take dictation from them, but but certainly, you know, try to understand where they're coming from.
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's nuanced, you know, there's, there's a lot of facets to something like that. Um, and, and, and especially when it comes to writers, you can have lots of discussions about mental health and you can have discussions about what is owed and what is not owed. And, and I, I kind of tend to, to be kind of where you are in terms of there's, you, you, they they talk about, you know, people will argue about what's the unwritten contract between a reader mm-hmm. and The writer and and i'm i i don't know if i feel like there is a solid contract uh you know unwritten contract but i i feel that it does exist there is a a bond kind of between you that you know because a reader will put in a a small monetary investment and a large emotional investment and and i think that does mean something
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and which is why i mean circling back to the adaptation of your book series, uh, I want, you know, I, I, I said from the very beginning, I want you as involved as, as possible <laughs> because I want the fans to know that, you know, we're going to do right by you and the world and yeah. the characters you've created. And really, I mean, more than anything, it comes down to the characters. Yeah. Right? And and I think that's one of the things, uh, I think tone and characters are, are two of the big things. They're the two big things that uh, uh, fans can react um, adversely to if mm-hmm. if things are switched up. So you try to be as true to the original source material as possible. And 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 really, it's been to my detriment. I found over the years, uh, you know, I've pitched uh, a number of, um, of potential adaptations like. Um, Versus a real studio will say, "Hey, we're looking to do an adaptation of this anime," and yeah. you know, I'm a big anime fan, so I'll be like, "Great!" and I'll I'll put together a pitch and I'll pitch them, and they'll be like, "Ah, you know, it it kind of stays too close to the source material." And I'm like, <laughs> "Seriously?" But they want something like a wild reimagining, and um, at that point, for me, it's kind of a bridge too far. At that point, you're not. At that point, we just make something else. If you're not being true to the original i mean you can always kind of of course you want to update and you, and and there, there there will always be kind of uh, little tweaks you will make but um if if you i would say corrupt the spirit of the original source material then uh <laughs> uh you're uh, you're you're asking for it right and then and you also you lose the people
1: that are almost guaranteed to buy a ticket you know or to subscribe yeah. well that's another
0: thing i and and i don't know if, if um Executives and decision makers overlooked the fact that when you're dealing with an IP, an established IP, like Powder Mage, like Stargate, you have a fan base that yeah. will get out on social media and they will be your biggest proponents and go such a long way towards helping you launch. But if you screw with them, they're going to be the biggest pain in the ass. Yeah. And you're going to regret it. I mean, guaranteed, you're gonna regret it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there are ways to keep them happy.
1: I uh, I wanted to fit one thing in really, really quickly. Um, I wanted you to tell me a little bit about Suji because you you have a, a couple of elderly pugs. I, right? have, I have
0: I have one elderly pug.
1: Okay, one elderly pug. And then, you, but you have you've got more than one, right? All, no, no, one. I
0: had I had well, I had three before okay. and then uh, two of them passed away and we had, we got a french bulldog oh, and then we okay. got suji and then one of the pugs passed away and then my friend she passed away um uh, end of 2019 and so now it's just suji she's like an only dog oh no and um but she's a you know she's a an internet star she has like more followers on instagram uh than i do on twitter yeah uh, my wife dresses her up and all these these. Fancy outfits in fact she, her her wardrobe is three times the size of my wife's wardrobe uh, and she was she was a rescue pug uh, we we ended up yeah. adopting her when she first came to us she couldn't walk she came with a wheelchair and then we ultimately we got her her walking uh first with a the sling then we went to hydrotherapy and laser therapy we gave her massages and now she can walk without the um the wheelchair she's quite a a a wobbly cantankerous uh walker doesn't yes. like other dogs um is indifferent to people but really like snacks. <laughs> oh, so just like me? Well, I guess so. Or, or like any celebrity, it's kind of funny. Whenever we go out, there are, its mind blowing. But there are occasions when people will recognize her. Oh, that's crazy! And they'll want to take a picture with her. And, and like any celebrity, you're like, "Oh my gosh, you know, I love you. You're so amazing." And then you get to do, be in the picture with them, and they don't want to have anything to do with you in that suit. <laughs> so she's always like trying to get out of the photo. So, yeah, uh, yeah very celebrity, very um. diva.
1: Oh that's very funny i i I thought it was kind of cool because you know most people shy away from adopting older pets uh older dogs because there's not you know you you're not going to have the longevity with them and mm-hmm. and and you so you don't get as much of the i guess the fun of living a long life with them and yeah before you know it's the end um and you know my wife and I have always adopted um mm-hmm. but our our dogs have always been. A little bit younger, I think, uh, but I think it's really cool.
0: Yeah, for, for me, it's just kind of heartbreaking when I think of these dogs who, you know, were raised in in, in good homes, and then either because they're having trouble walking or or having other issues, are given up, or sometimes their elderly owner passes away. And so, you know, if if you know, it's just it's 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 a small thing, but like you said, you don't have as much time with them, which is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Which is you know also sort of why I would love to get like a bunch of them but uh suji does not play with with others so uh so she's a uh, an only dog for now. Oh. <laughs> That's great. So
1: so I have one last question for you. Yeah, shoot. What is the last meal that totally blew your mind?
0: Totally blew my mind. I mean, I just yeah. went out. I'll tell you what I did today which is kind of crazy. It didn't even really okay. blow my mind, but I I we went to this place called uh Maddie's Patties is this burger place that does kind of like crispy smash cheeseburgers. Um, and and, and textually, they're great, like amazing. And then for dessert, we went to a place called uh, Tokyo Hot Chicken that serves a spicy fried chicken sandri- sandwich with two scoops of vanilla ice cream. Uh, and, and I did that for dessert. Um,
1: uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that.
0: <laughs> I mean, on the other hand,
1: I, I love chicken and waffles smothered uh-huh. in maple syrup so maybe yeah. i'd be
0: okay with that. i think you might be okay with that it was a bit messy a bit messy yeah uh, in terms of mind-blowing
2: damn, no, that's you...
0: tough one. i would i would think i mean every time i go to tokyo i try to go to tokyo every year but i haven't been for for several years yeah um just because of scheduling and pandemic and, and old dogs uh, but every time i go there um i will have at least a half dozen meals that will just kind of a little my mind, whether it just be sushi or they do, I mean, they do French f- food, frankly, better than, than I've had in France. They do Italian food. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes better than uh, some of the home cooking I've had. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Cause you love, I, I don't, I know that you tweet a lot about weird foods, um, but I was curious whether you like to eat a lot of weird foods.
0: I, you know, I, I'm an adventurous eater. I will yeah. pretty much try most anything. Um, but there are things I like. Like, you know, I mentioned them sushi, cheese, smash burgers, and uh, fried chicken. Oh, and boozy <laughs> ice cream is something that's, it's, it's very dangerous. There's a place that opened up just around the corner from my place that serves uh, a boozy ice cream, bourbon chocolate, and a, uh, a whiskey laced salted caramel. I'm in trouble.
1: <laughs> I'm in trouble. That sounds dangerous. It is. Oh, that's great. That was writer and producer Joseph Malozzi. Thanks again to Joe for joining me. You can find links to Joe's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com/pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio don't forget to life, like, and subscribe.